we made this. Hi, we dig music, and because of this, we've kept the music in our podcast at a low background level because we believe that you should support the artists by buying their records and going to their gigs. If you want to hear the songs in full, we've made Spotify playlists of all available music featured in each episode, which you can find on wedigpodcasts.com. You can also join in the discussion on Facebook and Twitter by searching at WeDigMusicPCast. Finally, if you dig what you're hearing, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice, write a review if possible, and tell all your friends that you think would enjoy it. Anyway, enough of my yakking. On with the podcast. Welcome to Weedig Music. I'm Colin, and with me as usual are my comrades and co-hosts Tracy, hello, and Ian, hello. Uh, each month we take uh, two bands, a well-known band and a less well-known band, and talk utter fucking bollocks about them. Uh, this month it's the letter C, so we will be talking about crap weasel. Uh, no, no, we won't. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, cannibal corpse. <laughs> that would be better. That would be so much better. We've got uh, Tracy's chosen uh, the indie pop band Camera Obscura. Yay! Um, Are they ever? And uh, obscure. We'll, well, they're not massively obscure. I've I'd heard of them. There's just I not found much to say. I'd heard of it as a concept. Yeah, and there's, I was there's more one in Bristol. Buy it as the concept. And there's one in Edinburgh. Yes, um, and also uh, Nick Cave and all of his projects, which is more exciting. Which is a lot more exciting for for both of us, but. Uh, We'll try and get into uh, as much interesting stuff as we can about Camera Obscura. Tracy, tell us about them. Scottish indie pop band formed in Glasgow in 1996. The lineups had some changes, but the most recent lineup is Tracy Ann Campbell on vocals and guitar, Kenny McKeeve on guitar and vocals, Gavin Dunbar on bass, and Lee Thompson on drums. Um, the previous drummer, John Henderson, also used to sing and was fairly key to the sound of the first two albums, although I've got to admit I didn't like his songs as much as Tracy Ann's. Um, uh, they've released five studio albums between 2001 and 2013, and in 2018, Tracy Ann had a side project um, with Danny um, under the name of Tracy Ann and Danny. Um, he's How long do you think it took them to come up with the name for that side project? <laughs> it was longer than camera obscura. <laughs> Yeah, he, he actually um, performs under the name Crybaby and has previously supported Camera Obscura on tour. Uh, so, although I must say I haven't heard his own stuff. So, what? <laughs> so, the Crybaby. I'm stuff. kind of disappointed. I'm sorry. 
I was expecting you to. Also, it begins with C, so... Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Sorry, missed like opportunity there. Alphabetically appropriate. Damn it. it. Didn't try and fucking ram an extra... OK, well, so, I'll, so I'll, get, I'll get the next C in. Um, I saw them live in 2007 at the Glee Club. Um, that would have been the Let's Get Out of This Country tour. And the keyboard player at that time was the beautiful Kerry Lavender. Um, but... She she joined in 2002, but sadly died in 2015. Which is what most of the stuff that, when I tried to do any research on them, mm. near enough every article was just about the fact that she about sadly died. Um, yeah. And yeah. not much about the music. No, I mean, the band have been on a bit of a hiatus since their last album um, in 2013, um, because they, they, they just can't really face playing again without her um, which is why Tracy Ann did the side project with Danny is just something so different a complete diversion but, but, but not, <laughs> but not, but, but not the same yeah, songs yeah. No, it was just it. a complete diversion yeah. um, which is possibly why they <laughs> which is possibly why they didn't really spend many time on the name it was just yeah Tracy Ann and Danny um, <laughs> but so I, I mean they are so steeped in the classic Scottish pop sound um, their first album... I would say not particularly Scottish. Yes, they're a Scottish indie band, but their influences, it's Phil Spector's 60s pop stuff. Oh, absolutely. OK, what I mean by steeped in the Scottish pop is the, the Bell and Sebastian they're, link. Well, yeah, which they are... Their, their first album was produced by good. Stuart Murdoch. Yeah. Um, which you wouldn't be surprised to hear when you listen to the songs. And they have that... The, the, the earlier stuff, for sure, was very jangly. Um, it's got that kind of storytelling line to the lyrics. Very Bell and Sebastian. It's, it just seems... Every time I've listened to it, I've just thought, this is Bell and Sebastian light, and they're pretty fucking light to start with. I, I found a review... I didn't read, find the whole review, but it was like it was written by Tracy, but I know it wasn't, <laughs> it was in the Times. Um, Camera Obscura, a band who should only play old chapels and dust, dusty dance halls. <laughs> Their stylish retro pop has enough swoon and a sway to tease out ones in a beehive. Crucially, though, they also have the emotional authenticity that transcends pastiche on this night that feeling was especially intense. Oh, I could, I could have written that. Yeah. But it's all very true. And, and, and they do escape pastiche. Um, they're terribly twee, but, but somehow get away and don't get labelled as such. You're screwing your face up. You're well, disagreeing with me. they just mainly get labelled as Bell and Sebastian copyists, and Bell and Sebastian have always been labelled as twee. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but I mean... I mean, their, their first album in 2001, for me, it's as, as debut albums go, it's near perfect. There's, it's totally my wavelength. There's absolutely nothing whatsoever wrong with it at all. There is nothing to dislike about any of their music. See, that's what I thought. I've I was like, yeah, it's there. It and, is there. And didn't it make your heart swoon? No, it didn't. It didn't fuck really out nothing. Like, it didn't make me angry. It didn't make me annoyed at their shit musicianship. It didn't make me... Because it's all me... good. It's, they're all fine. Like, it's all possible. And, and didn't you sigh at the bittersweet no. heartbreak no. No. of no. their lyrics? Oh, Not at all. You're such boys. Well, no, because no. there's loads of music that does that. But it's this just, just this. said nothing to me. It... 
I think. You I know, mean, like those people that get really excited when they picked out a shade of paint, and it's just beige with a really interesting <laughs> name. That's what this is. Maudlin. That'd like, be a good name for a paint. Bittersweet Maudlin. I, I don't think they're they particularly have, They've maudlin. got an album called My Maudlin Career. Yes, they do, they do. Which I don't think they're particularly Maudlin. It's all cheerfully background music-y type stuff. She like did, dinner party music. Don't you think she's got fact, such... Weren't they on? Yes. Come dine with me. Were they? Yes, they so, were. So, I, knew, I already knew uh, Lloyd I'm Ready To Be Heartbroken and 80s Fan. Yeah. But I thought they were the only two songs that I knew. Uh-huh. But then I started listening through, and um, the uh, French French, French Navy, Navy came up. I bet yes. And I was like, "Hold on, where do I know that from?" <laughs> and then I worked it out that it used to be on um, "Come Dine with Me." It used to be sponsored by a wine company. I think it might have been Jacobs Creek yes, or something. It is okay. Jacobs Creek, right? And every single ad break, it had the first ten seconds of that song, and then the same. So I didn't know what the song went like after that. But I used oh. to watch that loads. I haven't watched Come Dine With Me in years, so I've entirely missed my, that. My friend Andrea's on an episode, and I need to find it, because she's the entertainment in one of them in a, a Wolverhampton episode. Oh, I fantastic. our mutual friend Kiz actually was a host on one episode. Oh, my God, I need to find that. I definitely haven't seen that. Uh, he, he was talking about going on it. I imagined he was too much of a prick and they never aired the episodes. Because, <laughs> Kiz, if you're listening... My friend Octavia auditioned to do one but didn't get through. (laughs) Which is strange because you'd think someone with a name like Octavia. They wouldn't give her a free car. No, she auditioned once to go on Blind Date and didn't get past the initial part either. See? There you go. The world is missing out on on not having Octavia on TV, I can tell you. (laughs) Um, But no, so you said you don't think they're particularly maudlin. I mean, don't you think there's just. Have you got some lyrical examples? Well, no, I was going to just say the tone of her voice, though. Don't you think there's just something really quite sad about, sorrowful about her voice? I listened to it a month ago, and it's all gone. <laughs> no, no, not particularly. Have you not listened again since? Because, <coughs> because be for the listeners, we were meant to record this um, a month ago, but we stopped the recording session because I couldn't stop coughing. Yes, that was just after the Christmas episode yeah. that we recorded. Um, the... No, I've I've been listening. I was listening to it this, this morning, mm. um, trying desperately to find something to say to grab onto. Oh, she's got such an adorably sad voice. It's, I mean, she breaks my heart with every word. Um, but I mean, but then also the, the, you're susceptible uh, to that kind of thing. Well, I am. I am. Um, I, I just think this kind of mournful, a bit weepy. Um, I'm trying to find some lyrical examples. Um, the only... My head's been lying dormant like a sleepy little mouse. Yes, that's a miracle, <laughs> isn't it? What I have inside me, it's enough to fill a house. <laughs> There's a lyric in um, Country Mile from their... Um, One of their albums, <laughs> In Country Mile um, that says... It's just a beautiful song about the state of love. I mean, the song makes me cry. Um, surprise, surprise. Um, but she sings, "The more, the more you look forlorn, the more to you I warm," and that's that. That's what I yeah. think about most can music. I, can I just read the first rhyming couplet of this song? Of Country Mile. Silver birch against the Swedish sky. The singer in the band made me want to cry. <laughs> Is See, I could have written these lyrics. For Tracy yeah, Bang. so this instead of Tracy Bingo, this is Tracy and Bingo. Yes. 
<laughs> it's not you, is it? It's not it's me. It's not you in disguise. I wish it were. There are, there's accordion all over that album, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, maybe it is me. Um, but... I mean, oh, they've got some really nice little sweet lyrics, though, that are just kind of quite funny. Um, in um, the, the debut album, the opening line of Pen and Notebook is, you saved for a bass guitar and you knew you'd made a mistake when you first saw Ma. <laughs> Which, that's, that's not bad. It's a great opening line. It's, it's definitely line. a better lyric than, you make me go ooh with the things that you do. Yeah, that's which pretty... is possibly the one of the worst lyrics I've ever heard, which is in French Navy. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the there's a line in um, suspended from class um, under from underachievers. Please try harder. It says, "I should be suspended from class because I don't know my elbow from my arse." And you've never heard well, none of them definitely. You've happen. never heard the word arse sung so gently and beautifully. There is absolutely no fucking way that they ever even got told to do lines at school. No, they definitely weren't suspended. No trouble at all. (laughs) But, okay, so you're not finding them very maudlin or very swoony or very heartbreaking, but you picked up on the Phil Spector thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're like a massive, massive, like, girl pop, um, 60s girl pop group influence. Um, And, I mean, 80s fan opens with that famous uh, Hal Blaine drum intro from Be My Baby. Um, And actually, I, I I was looking up because, I mean, there are so many songs that start like that. Yeah. It's become a really famous intro. And I don't even know if, if Be My Baby would have been the first time that would have been used, but it's probably the most. I, I think it's generally... Well, well I, dare, I dare say it wouldn't be because it's just a beat, isn't it? And, and particularly with, with Hal Blaine at that point and the Wrecking Crew, like we spoke yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. The, the amount of songs that they were going in to record... He probably reused it. Well, it's in um, um, it's in uh, Ronnie Spector's "Bye Bye Baby" yeah, as well, which I think he must yeah. be playing on as well. Almost certainly, he did a lot yeah. of Spector stuff. Yeah, but then I mean, I wrote down. I mean, there was a whole playlist I found of these, but I, I wrote down a couple of them. Um, Jesus and Mary Chain, of course, used it more than once. Yeah. Um, just like Honey and Sowing Seeds, uh, it's all over that. But then Pet Shop Boys, King's Cross, uh, Rocky Erickson's "I Walked with a Zombie." Which are all Spectre influenced stuff. I know, but then there's all the more interesting, like Duran Duran's is there something I should know, opens with it. Um, My Morning Jacket's The Bear, and Kanicki's Millionaire Sweeper. Yeah. I like. I love Kanicki. I know you do. (laughs) That's why I depict that one out. Um, Did you know, actually? I know we're going back to the the, the Beach Boys episode and Hal Blaine. Because it wasn't long enough. (laughs) Because it wasn't long enough, and there's still notes left over. Um, Hal Blaine, apparently, as well as putting his stamp over all the music, apparently he had a customised actual rubber stamp that said Hal Blaine strikes again and he used to stamp it on everything and he used well, to like it's like, like graffiti just well, like she, yeah like she, on, on sheet music that he'd been given on music venues and um, <laughs> Nancy Sinatra actually joked that she, she, she had it stamped on her body somewhere <laughs> so, wouldn't surprise me but um, oh no anyway back to 80s fan which you know is the, 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 the Be My Baby intro it's, it's just such a perfect pop song I mean, do you, do you find it more pastiche than? Yeah, this is, I just don't find anything to grab onto with it. It's all fine. It's just that's it. <laughs> I'd I'd like to like it, um, and I well, don't but, dislike it. No, I know it's, you said you don't dislike it. Uh, you know, I, I've listened to their entire discography and the the Tracy Allen and Danny record, and and all of it is fine. 
Um, did you like the Tracy Allen Danny? Because I mean, I think that's particularly swooning. It was. I mean, that that for a, a slight tangent is a bit more um, reminded me a little bit more of the Everly Brothers and that kind of thing than uh, the Spectre type stuff quite as much. Yeah, it's a bit. Um, it's quite Richard Hawley as well because well, of that's his one voice. Of the, that's, that's one of the things I was thinking. There are loads of people that do that kind of thing, such as and Richard Hawley was one of the major ones mm. that I thought about. Where it does grab me, and yeah. it does make me want to listen. I mean, um, tonight the streets are ours by Richard Hawley. It's a fucking beautiful song. Yeah, and Valentine. And and these are all totally the same genre and totally yeah. the same the same sound. But there's just something that he adds that's missing, and I can't pinpoint what it is. Well, did, I mean, did you like the Hammer Obscura songs um, when there is the male vocals as well? The first two albums. Not particular. I don't actually remember any of the male vocals, and I've listened to them this morning. Okay, um, there, there was a review actually of the Tracy Ann and Danny album um, in the Guardian, which is another one that sounds like it could have been written by me, <laughs> and uh, it described the album as a, a tender and crisply realised collection of panoramic pop vignettes and yearning love songs. Yeah. Um, and it is. They're all just yeah, little perfect vignettes. They, they're, they're so sweet, so pretty. So simple, so beautifully arranged. Yeah, it's just... and I mean, so much of it reminded me of other things that I wanted to then go and listen to the other things instead. Like, I mean, obviously, Lloyd, I'm Ready to Be Heartbroken is an answer song to Lloyd Cole. Yes. Are You Ready to Be Heartbroken off uh, Rattlesnakes, which is a brilliant album. So I just wanted to listen to that instead. They, they do like a, a meta-reference. Um, I mean, they, they, they reference... Um, in the sweetest thing on my modelling career, they reference 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Yeah. Um, not the U2 song, then. <laughs> no, no, not that. Um, no backing vocals from Boys <laughs> And, and I, I mean, I think something like, um, say, New Year's Resolution, I think it's kind of got some of Teenage Fan Club and Light Ships in it as well, that kind of... I mean, this is what I was saying again about the, the Scottish pop history, because I can hear... That that kind of that kind of guitar line in there, and um, also the lyrics in that one, uh, New Year's resolution to write something of value, um, which I thought was like kind of very much like the Gerard Love lyric line of you know, that this self doubt, this. Um, the, this I hope they don't listen because I might give them all that self doubt again. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 because he's going to release There's a second people, album there, soon. There are people that absolutely. I mean, I, I've just noticed recently on on Twitter various people that we know on there going on about how much they love Camera Obscura and mm. it's, it, it's going all the way back to our second, third ever episode where you were talking about not having a Bowie receptor. Yeah. I think I just don't I mean, the thing is though, you, but, but you really like Bell and Sebastian. I really like stuff that's just like it. Um, and, I mean, I mean, you know, like things like the horn arrangements in Bell and Sebastian, they have that to a lesser extent in some, yeah. in some Camera Obscura songs and... I, I, I'm not sure why you're not getting it because I think it's utter pop loveliness. Like that's the the key phrase here, isn't it? They do good things to a lesser extent than bands that you like. Quite possibly. There's quite a few bands out there who I know I should like because they're adjacent to things yeah. that I love, and I'm like, fuck off! I've got this band. This band are better. <laughs> you know. Like, yeah. It's like the sequel. It's like a, I don't need to watch fucking. Bad Boys 2 because I've got Bad Boys 1 
Mm. <laughs> Except Bad Boys 2 is fucking great as well. Think, so yeah, bad, bad, example, bad example. The thing is, I mean, for you, you're saying other oh, bands do it better, but even though they have the Bell and Sebastian thing, they have the girl 60s band thing, none of them quite have Tracy Ann's voice, and I utterly adore her voice. So for me, there isn't anyone that does that better. Because that's, I am quite so addicted to the sound of her cool. voice, so yeah, so like so you, I would. You're allowed to like yeah. them. You yeah. just can't. And um, so is everyone else. Yeah, it's just. I mean, I mean, in the Underachievers, Please Try Harder album, because um, John, the drummer, was singing quite a lot of the songs, um, it felt like that that she there weren't enough Tracy Ann songs. And someone I read a, a review on Rate Your Music um, that said underusing Campbell's vocals should be made a criminal offence. <laughs> uh, and, and I totally Written agreed with by that. Tracy B. <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, I, I can totally dig that because Rilo Kiley albums, I absolutely hate it when there's a song that Blake Sennett sings. Yeah. Apart from one. Because you're like, for God's sake, when you've got a voice like Jenny's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> why aren't you using it? Um, but one, one thing that I was reading about that they were involved with, um, are you familiar with the Boaty Weekender? Yes, I've heard of it. So there was a there was a festival. Um, it was actually organised by Bell and Sebastian. But, yes. Um, but they, Bassian uh, and Danny played as well as Camera Obscura. Right. Um, and it's it, there was so Bell and Sebastian put on a big festival called the Bowley Weekender at a, a, it was a Butlins or a Pontins holiday camp in the late nineties, about ninety eight, ninety nine. Mm-hmm. And that then led to all of the All Tomorrow's Parties festivals. Oh. That's oh, okay. where they got that idea. And they did this as, I think it must have been like the 15th anniversary of it. Um, so they did the, the Boaty Weekender where they went and, and organised a cruise ship with all of these bands playing in various different um, things. But it just, it really, really pissed me off because... This is indie music. They're mm. all about, um, you know, buying all your clothes from thrift shops and sec- going to second-hand record shops and doing stuff that doesn't cost loads of money. And the cheapest fucking ticket was £1,200 <gasps> per person. Yeah. And with that, you'd got... I mean, the, the lineup. You'd fucking love the lineup. Yeah. Ben and Sebastian, Mogwai, Camera Obscura, Buzzcocks, Teenage Fan Club, Vaseline's, Honey Blood, Tracy Ann and Danny, Always, and Japanese Breakfast. That's not enough bands for a thousand pounds. It's not. And it's not. Even though I love them all, it's, it's still not enough. It's no. not. And I looked at the schedule. And she's left, right, and centre. Teenage fan club and Mogwai, the two pretty much biggest draws on that lineup, mm. were on it exactly the same time. <gasps> not playing at other times around the weekend. That's terrible. So if you paid that much money, you'd want to see every single fucking. Well, for band. that for that yeah. mon- for that money, I'd have wanted a, a night with Gerard Love included. <laughs> that would have been worth it. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the exactly the business that Gerard is in. <laughs> Fending off thirsty Tracys. Not. Well, no, he probably is with that. Um, but the, the, the fact of being paid for it, I, uh, I think you're casting some certain aspersions yeah, on Yeah, sure, uh, sure. Professionalism there, Tracy. Do you know, actually, I found one which it, I don't know if you'd have listened to it. It was on um, Desire Lines um, every weekday. And I thought maybe that one might have piqued your interest because I thought Did it had... Did you put it on the playlist? No, I didn't. I've, wow. I listened to all of the albums. But I thought that had almost like a high-life Afro beat to it. I didn't particularly notice. No. I'll maybe that's it. just me. I'll but, give uh, it a listen. But, what, you know, I mean... What, one thing I did, I did uh, uh, arrangement, arrangements of Shapes and Space, on uh, which I think is on Biggest Bluest Hi-Fi, 
Um, it's got quite a nice instrumental sort of tune, but... Yeah, it's... Uh, well, I actually... I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful, um, just like pop waltz close to the album. Um, but I always thought it sounded like they maybe meant to add lyrics to that and just... Could well be a lot. And ran out of time. They are. But, but then maybe not. Um, yeah. yeah, that is a lovely instrument. They may well have recorded it and gone, you know what, he doesn't need it. There was, um, there was a lovely tweet from the Bansaham uh, account uh, last uh, in December and they were replying to a tweet from Edinburgh Castle because they tagged the band account in error. Yes, <laughs> It was about um, an Edinburgh Castle had tweeted, there's nothing lovelier than taking in the views on the Royal Mail on a winter's day. Thanks to our friends Camera Obscura for their wonderful viewpoint. Um, <laughs> and Camera Obscura, the band replied, said, you're welcome, but you may have tagged the wrong Camera Obscura, <laughs> but we can certainly provide an appropriate soundtrack to the view. <laughs> so... A camera obscura, it's like a weird like optical thing. Where it's a pinhole camera. It's like a pinhole camera, but um, you, yeah, you sort of look at it and it shows it shows you like the entire landscape. Yeah. Um, and there's one right by the Clifton Suspension Bridge Is there? in Bristol. Oh, I'd like uh, to go to that. I went. It's really near to the. There's a bit called the Rock Slide, where it's this old sort of like slopey cliff mm. that has been worn down for years. Can you slide people, down? Why people sliding down it? <laughs> Cool. And I did that, but then I panicked at the bottom and put my leg out to try and stop myself and twisted my ankle. That oh, was no! Fun. <laughs> Silly bastard. Yeah, Helen had to drive home because <laughs> I could not walk on it or use the accelerator. I haven't been to the one in Edinburgh either. Uh, yeah. But I think that's probably... Yeah, I feel like if we continue, Tracy's just going to sound like an over-pushy salesperson. <laughs> Very possibly. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. And, and I know and there's, there's a lot of people listening that will love them. It's just... Oh, yeah, and, and they will be feeling my frustration, my exasperation Probably. at not being able to convert you both. But, uh, um, yeah, but, 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 but hey... I'm sure I didn't get them into them, Incubus or whatever. But, 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 you know, I'll get my own back um, in the next episode. Oh, Really? I'm afraid so. Mmm. Well, <laughs> prepare to be wrong on a number of levels. Yes. So, uh, Ian, do you want to tell us about Nick Cave? No. Okay. Nicholas Edward Cave, according to Wikipedia. In fact, to read it correctly, Nicholas Edward Cave, A.O. Because <laughs> it has A.O. directly after it, and I don't know why. Is an Australian singer. Is that like a, a qualification type thing, is it? Uh, let's just check. Yes, it has the Order of Australia. Oh, awesome. Cool. So it's an order of chivalry, so it's basically like, like a Like an knight. OBE or something. It's like an upside-down knight. Yeah. <laughs> an Antipodean knight. He's a, a of the Order of Australia. So cool. there you go. Fantastic. Um, he's an Australian singer, songwriter, author, screenwriter, composer and occasional actor. Yes. Best known for fronting Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. His music is generally characterised by his baritone voice. 
emotional intensity and a wide variety of influences and lyrical obsessions, such as death, religion, love and violence. It does, all four of those I Excellent. think are fair, fair, uh, yep. fair comments. He's been active from 1973 to the present. He's an all-round cult hero, basically. Is yes. It? I like Nick Cave. He's good. I mean, he, he's a true performer. He, it's it's an, an almost cabaret at times, I think. Okay. Um, it seems a bit mean. Yeah. No, I don't mean cabaret. That's it, that just seemed working in, men's club to me. Oh, no, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, like, true performance, like larger-than-life performance is what I mean by I, that. I see him as, like, a fucking evangelist preacher yeah. kind of thing, you know? Yeah, but, definitely. Um... I, I, I was actually I was trying to think the other day I was probably thinking I'd probably say this later in the podcast but I was trying to think of other people that have got a similar kind of stage presence where they're so like commanding over an audience yeah and the only other person I could think of was Marilyn Manson 20 years ago you've never seen Goldblade live have you I cannot imagine that John Robb is quite on the level oh he is Okay. I'm going to go All right, there John Robb. No. John Robb is a camper, Nick Cave, I'd say then. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> Goldblade a fucking ace. I just, I, I've never seen them live, but I cannot it's, see that from. It's when you said life. a bit about the evangelism. Um, they've got a song um, called um, "Do You Believe in the Power of Rock and Roll," and he comes on the whole evangelist preacher in that. And yes, but is he constantly throughout the entire set, or is it just that with that vibe, or is it that song? No, it's throughout the set. He okay. he he engages with the crowd a lot. Okay. I suspect that this is not a route that anyone suspected this. No. Because <laughs> no. we're talking about Goldblade within about three seconds. Nor even I. It's not in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, Nick Cave, yeah. He's, he's one we all dig, isn't he? We all dig. But he's something of a sacred cow to his fans. And okay. I think he's someone you're not allowed to not dig. I think people are nervous about saying, like like me and Bowie. I'm not nervous because he's fucking brilliant. Well, he is fucking brilliant. <laughs> but um, I mean, I read someone say um, about his untouchable status, and they said the man only has to stretch and yawn, and it's hailed as a fucking opus, towering over everyone else's inferiority. I don't think he's ever released anything I'd describe as a stretch and a yawn, though. No, no, no. They're saying he. So, they're, they're, no, they're, they're, that, that's that untested. Just, that seems like potentially someone who, who doesn't, doesn't like, like him. him oh, no, no, absolutely, so, I think so. I mean, I, and I, I... My wife doesn't like him. Well, she doesn't dislike him, but she got into Tom Waits first, and as far Waits. as she's concerned... Tom Waits is... It, that is it's like, like we were saying in the last section, if you yeah. have found a band that does what you... Mm. So, so Tom Waits, or does Lid listen to maybe Leonard Cohen? Because uh, Nick so Cave has no. very much the Leonard Cohen Leonard thing Cohen's going a lot on. Less exciting. Yes, I, I can see. I can very much see the Tom Waits comparison. Absolutely. Yes. Particularly um, is is um, eighty three onwards. Yeah. More uh, gruff voiced lunaticness. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a massive Tom Waits fan as well. I think he, he, I've never had the chance to see him live, but I think he's probably got a similar kind of. Tom Waits or Nick Cave? Nick Cave. Uh, sorry, Tom Waits. I've seen Nick Cave about. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I can definitely really? see the comparisons, yeah. but I think. I, I, I personally prefer Nick Cave, but I think that's because yeah. I heard him first. So. Yeah. yeah, same here. I've only seen Nick Cave live once, actually. It was um, Brixton Academy in 2001. And honestly, I can't remember much about the gig. 
I was right at the back, so... Um, but I've been listening to him since I was about 13 or 14. Um, Would that be birthday party? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I was in... Uh, someone I've mentioned before on this pod... Um, we should clarify that... Wasn't That's Tracy's not birthday Tracy's party. birthday party because that would potentially have been quite a sombre affair. The <laughs> <laughs> um, previous band was called the birthday party. Yes. So the guy Malcolm that used to work at my family company, who introduced me to loads of cool music, which I don't think we've mentioned in We Dig Music. That was mentioned in Free with This Month's Issue episode. That you oh, was on. it? I thought I'd mentioned. So it. listen to that as well, guys. Oh, if you yeah, haven't. please do. But anyway, <laughs> Mal. Pollination. Um, when I was about 13 or 14, um, Mal lent me the Birthday Party Mutiny EP uh, and released the Bats as well, and the first Bad Seeds single, which is a cover of In the Ghetto, yep. which to this day my mum still hates. <laughs> I put it on a mixtape for her of covers. Have, have you ever played your mum Stagger Lee with the no. fact that your mum does not like swearing? No, I haven't. <laughs> um, but, I mean, so, so I'm in 13 or 14 to be listening to the birthday party and I was blown away by the raw energy. Um, but I didn't quite understand most of the references in the lyrics or the heroin references. And I think that might be the right sort of age to properly get into them because I was 12. Yeah. Um, I, I, know I also think it's the right age to not understand the heroin references. True. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. If you do, then... Uh, That's potentially yeah. a problem. Yes, I would <laughs> no, say so. I, I know, I, I still remember the exact first time that I knowingly heard Nick Cave, and it was in an X-Files episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's an episode called Ascension, which I think is the episode where Scully gets abducted by aliens, which is... Isn't that all of them? Two. No, it fucking isn't. It was a big thing. It was a... Yes, like, because she was the cynic. She didn't get yes. aliens. Of course. And she was abducted by aliens, and then it was like, shit, they must be real. It's not a conspiracy. They're out there. Um, and all that, but um, Red Right Hand was... I think Red Right Hand is the most... It's right. got to be the gateway for it. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I remember hearing that on the titles to Scream. It was one of the Scream movies, yeah. So And, of course, famously used in Peaky Blinders. Yes, so obviously yes. there's probably a new generation of yeah, people getting into it Yeah, absolutely. Now, which is great. I remember talking to you about the PJ Harvey cover of that and you did not like it, did you? I don't like it as much as Nick Cave's original. I really like it. I think it's a chilling version of it. But the original's so fucking good. Oh, it is. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, that so that that was that was '94 that that X Files episode came out, and then the year later um, was when Where the Wild Roses Grow yeah. was released as a single. So obviously that was a big hit huge because yeah. it got Kylie on it. Um, I remember um, I got murder ballads out from uh, the library and and taped it and had that for years. Uh, Home taping is killing music, kids. <laughs> and yet here we are talking about all the music that we own and yes. are paid for with money because we taped it first when we had no money. Yeah. Exactly. But I, I kind of just listened to little bits here and there for years until uh, Nocturama came out, which I think was 2001. 2003. Was it 2003? I'm pretty sure. Let's just assume. Yes, 2003. 2003. That, yeah, because it was when I was working. Be- because when I saw him in 2001, that was the No More Shall We Part tour. Yes, which was the, the album before that. Mm. Um, that's where I properly got big into and started buying near enough everything. Yeah. I, Nocturama gets a lot of hate. Really? I, don't get it. I adore it's it. Uh, it's got Bring It On on it, which is still. I think that's the song that. that 
we had that coming as a single. Um, when I worked at, at Virgin, we used to get a, um, there was like a compilation of various tracks off new releases and that got played on there and I thought it was brilliant. That's where I properly mm. got into it too. Babe I'm, on, Babe, I'm on Fire on that album yeah. is absolutely amazing. That's a stomper yeah. of a track. Um, and on the, the the opening track as well, Wonderful Life. Yeah, I love that one. I wished I'd seen him the year, on that tour as well, actually, but so I've only ever seen him the once, which is absolutely incredible. Um, I saw him, I don't think it was that tour. I think it was, I think Lyra of Orpheus Abattoir Blues mm. tour was the first time I saw him. Uh, I've seen him twice with Grinder Man. Oh, wow. Um, and I've seen the Bad Seas at, at various festivals. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen him twice in... Birmingham Academy, I think. Because of course they're going to be touring this year, and I think in Birmingham they're playing the they're playing arena, the, the arena. And, I, and and that's the thing I don't really want to go to arenas. I mean, I, I I was at a gig just Friday night at the Academy, and that feels too big for me. But that's because the Academy is the Academy is shit. Venue. It's the shittest venue ever. I, I hated it, and, and and I felt like the oldest person in there. I've as been well. to some amazing gigs at the NEC. I think it'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like he's a he's a big enough character to do that. To fill it. Well, well, absolutely. Just yeah. imagine. And I won't feel like the oldest person there just either. Just imagine KFD. how it's going to look with a single spotlight low down on the stage, with his shadow projected about across the entire fucking back wall of an arena. Wow. That'll look amazing. It will look amazing. But um, I I read um, that there's an essay um, on Nick Cave by John H. Baker. And he said, uh, the Bad Seeds music is frequently very beautiful, but it's always beauty at the edge of chaos. At any point, the chords, the melody could break apart and let in the sounds of violence, of despair, of pain. Nick saw that music could be an evil thing, a beautiful evil thing. <laughs> and I, that, that, yeah, I love the thing about Nick Cave is this is, yeah, there's the pain, there's chaos, cacophony beauty and evil it sort of feels like it's got the whole of humanity in it yeah it's one of the biggest influences on my um, music when absolutely when I used to write music years ago <laughs> I've not written stuff well I mean of course your song Murder Ballad exactly <laughs> I wrote a song called Murder Ballad which was part influenced by him part influenced by Rob Zombie yeah <laughs> and, and, and the whole genre of Murder Ballads exactly really but uh, but there's something very primal about his approach to songwriting. It's such a craft for him. What Nick said about songwriting, he said um, this was from um, the 20,000 Days on Earth, the yeah. 2014, yeah, the 2014 film, which is sort of true life and a bit of fiction as well. Um, but he said, do you want to know how to write a song? Songwriting is about counterpoint putting two disparate images side by side and seeing which way the sparks fly. Like letting a small child in a room with a Mongolian psychopath and sitting back and seeing what happens. Then you, sound in, then you send in a clown on a tricycle and again you watch. And if that doesn't do it, you shoot the clown. Seems fair. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, that approach to songwriting, it's, it, it's not contrived. He's very... He approaches it like writing a novel. He, he uh, goes and sits in an office each day to, yeah, to write. Yeah. He's really sort of yeah. regimented with, with how he does it, isn't he? Which he, he's put out a you know a lot of music over the years. So uh, it works. It works, yeah. And it's I cannot think of a bad bad seeds album. I mean, like if it is your job, 
why would you not treat it as a job and have a place that you go to? No, it's true. It doesn't work for some people, really, I don't think. No, I think some people, if they did that, it would come out forced and they'd be churning out formulaic. But imagine, like, that's what writers do, though, isn't it? They go and sit Mm. in a room. Oh, yeah, like Stephen King, who's, you know, ridiculously prolific, as also works in the same way he goes into I think most writers do that yeah I mean it's not but it's it's not like that it's an office job and he sits there and then he clocks off from it or anything at the end of the day because having a space to create yeah oh absolutely but I mean because he has catalysts in his life that feed into his songwriting you know his relationships with whoever at the time his drugs all the people he's murdered yeah allegedly um, <laughs> he, the, 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 the sorrow and grief in his life catalysts that feed into it but, but yeah, but then allowing himself the space to just sit down and do that clearly Yeah, it, I mean that's, it, that's why I built this studio so I've got a place to go and create things yeah. and hopefully eventually when it's properly finished I'll walk in mm. and I'll be like, okay, I'm creative now yeah. this is my creative area yeah. and it will just help me switch into that That's cool there was an interesting part, actually, as well, in 20,000 Days on Earth when he was talking with Blixer. Um, Excellent, from Einstein, Sender Neubauten, who's in the bad seats as well. Oh, my God, you pronounced it right. I can pronounce Einstein, Sender Neubauten. <laughs> as if he hasn't gone out and done research because he knew he was going to have to say. To be fair, I've not had to practice that. I've just known how to pronounce Einstein, Sender Neubauten. For yeah. years. Another thing I'd like to put on Tracy Bingo is Tracy uses an over-familiar way to refer to someone she's never met before. <laughs> <laughs> Blixer. Blixer. <laughs> it's a nice name. I like the name. It's not his actual name, though. No. You don't know what his actual name is, no. do you? Christian. Jeff. Yes. Well, I have read that. Jeff anyway, there was an interesting. Christian Emmerich, in fact. Yes. So, about the songwriting, there was an interesting thing where he was talking to um, Cave. Who, strangely, I'm talking about his cave and not over-familiar all of a sudden now. Now you're putting me off. But they were talking about the process of collaboration. We should talk about Polly in a bit. Oh, I've got got a whole page of Polly notes, don't you worry. Uh, They were talking about the process of collaboration and the benefit of hindsight. And Cave said he wishes he'd had someone to tell him that the songs were too long. Now, I don't know which album he was on about when they were talking about this, but he said... As soon, as soon as he's ever pinned down a song, as soon as he fully understands it, he loses interest in it. And when it comes to songwriting, he likes the early chase of a song, the feeling when a song is... the song's still in control of you and you're hanging on for dear life. Um, and then once he feels like he's got it under control, he's like, oh, I've done that. And, uh-huh. And it was a really interesting conversation, I thought, because yeah. um, I mean they didn't talk for some years, I believe. No, after uh, he said in in the documentary, he never really knew why Blixer had left the Bad Seeds. Mm. Um, so it sounds like they didn't really sort of talk about it at the time, but then they talked about it yeah. a little bit in the documentary. And, and that felt nice. It felt like a reconciliation. It was it was lovely. Not um, like the the Lars and Dave Mustaine moment. No. <laughs> <laughs> Less tears. That that documentary was lovely, actually, because that that, that was the interview in the car, um, the the, the, the conversation in the car, and then he had another car conversation with Kylie. But she was in the back, which was like he was the chauffeur or something. And and what was. That's because Kylie's not large enough to sit on a front seat. Yeah, (laughs) probably. (laughs) But it was a really beautiful little moment because you can see that she quite obviously adores him. Have you watched the. 
on the, the DVD extras, uh, there's uh, a load of live footage on there, and there is uh, him, uh, Kylie, joining them to do Where the Wild Roses oh, Go. Did you see Kylie's Glastonbury set from last year? Uh, no. Oh, he bought, she bought Nick Cave on, and it was the most glorious moment. I've seen oh, Nick Cave so at lovely. But, uh, yeah. I imagine there's a bunch of people that went there to see Kylie, like, who the fuck is this old <laughs> What is this about? Well, when that album came out, actually, um, they, they, they were on top of the pops. And, peop- and, you know, so people suddenly knew who Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds were because they're on top of the pops with Kylie. And they would have bought the album and listened to it. And then Nick Cave said, and that's the point they realised it was the last time they would ever have anything to do with <laughs> Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. <laughs> I, I like the bit where he was talking about how he actually ended up working with Kylie. Because apparently yes. they got in touch with the record company and it was just completely shut just, down. Uh, yeah, yeah. But Kylie wouldn't do that. So he spoke to Michael Hutchins, who she was going out with at the time. Yeah. And, and she was like, yeah, yeah, amazing. <laughs> of course I will. <laughs> of course I will. But uh, yeah, so Polly then. Since, <laughs> since, since she brought it to anybody that isn't over familiar with her work. Literally everyone else in the world knows her apart from like, I don't know. Her mom. And I'm being over familiar again, yes. of course, aren't I? Just, it's just Polly to me. <laughs> um, Have you met her? No. Then she's not. No. Do you know what? Stalker. Do you know what? I'd be terrified. You know what? I'm, I'm Ian Clark to literally anyone that hasn't met me. <laughs> just call me fucking Ian unless you've met me. <laughs> I don't know you. Mr. Clark. <laughs> but of course the... Dickhead. I'll answer to anything, you know. The boat... The boat... The boatman's... respect. You command mockery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it works. The Boatman's Call, of course, is the Bad Seas album about Polly and about the breakup. Because they were, for people that don't know, because you're assuming a lot there, Tracy. I, I am yes. assuming a lot. Uh, no, she was his girlfriend. people know who Polly is. Yes. And the people know they were fucking. <laughs> but so you know. Now, PJ Harvey, fucking Nick Cave at some point. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> they then split up and he wrote a really fucking good album. Um, which he wrote a really good album when they were together, so I don't think it had any bearing. Well, no, I mean, but he called he described that album as um, an artistic rupture and the cons- compensatory largesse for a broken heart, um, saying that that album. It, and that is why he constantly writes good albums because his vocabulary is <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's. Yeah, it purged him, he cured him of, of uh, Polly Harvey. But he said it changed the way he made music. Um, the breakup, he said, filled him with a lunatic energy and gave him the courage to write about his own experiences in place of the character-driven stories that had, had populated his previous albums. I've got an amazing quote from him about their breakup. Go on, then. I, so, I know exactly the one you're going to say. Go uh, on. Uh, PJ Harvey, as is her name... Uh, Polly phoned him um, and said, we've got a breakup. And he was like, why? And she was like, it's just over. And he said he was so surprised that he almost dropped his syringe. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, He was on a lot of heroin at the time. I mean, (laughs) he said that that, that Polly's commitment to her own work was probably um, as narcissistic... Narcissistic? Yeah, I've got... a case of the Collins over here. <laughs> Narcissistic and as egomaniacal... Fuck's sake. Egomaniacal. <laughs> Was as good as his own. 
<laughs> they're quite similar artists, aren't they? They've, they've got a similar Very. kind of vibe. Mm. Well, if you look at them, they do. Yeah, they do look a bit similar as well. That is fair. Although they... she's a, obviously, he's a fucking weird-looking dude, isn't he? He's got these massive nostrils. He's like got this like massive forehead that's like reaches the ceiling. He's got a very long neck. He has. He's a he, dude's about fucking nine feet tall. That might be just my perception because yeah, I'm about three feet tall. How how high is Nick Cave? It depends what year it is. Um, he, he is weird looking, um, and yet cool very very attractive to women. So I've, so I've noticed. Tracy becomes thirsty. <laughs> I'll, I'll yeah try to control myself. I'll, I'll, I'll get a swig of beer. Um, Six foot two. So yeah. the cave is actually the same height as me. Okay, it's taller than oh. I am. Your beard's longer. He yes. doesn't have a beard. His, his face is really. longer. <laughs> <laughs> his forehead is massive. But I think the thing about. Nick Cave is. I found a picture of him and he looks like I've just told him I'm the same height as him, but he's got a massive forehead. <laughs> look, he looks thoroughly. That's how you yep. look if yeah. I said that sentence to you, wouldn't you? Yes. He just looks disappointed in me and a little bit like, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. So, sorry, Nick. This, this is good for the podcast. Oh, let's, let's... oh that, that is a disdainful look. Yeah. Just imagine a picture of Nick Cave giving a disdainful look. There you go. Yeah. Like, if you just Google image search Nick Cave, that's the that's look. the look because all the of first his one comes up. But the thing about Nick Cave, I think he's got three very distinct elements to his style. Um, he, he's kind of got the early punk cacophony from yeah. the birthday party, and then he's got this swooning, crooning ballad side. But then he's also got the attitude and swagger of the um, Abattoir Blues and the Grinderman Project. Um, and, and, and I wanted to, I was trying to trace where, at what point did he turn from like Wailing Banshee to Velvet Crooner? Um, and, and, and so I've actually developed something um, that I call the Nick Cave Swoon, Swagger and Clatter Scale. <laughs> Course. And I actually have you painted that? I should. Because I really should before the episode goes out. Because people might make a lot of money on that. So, yeah. um, so what I thought I was going to do though, I wanted to assess every song on every album. Have you tested be a fucking this game? Feature? It's not a game. It's not a game. Say, just... Have you tested this on someone? No, because it's just... because it's entirely subjective. Okay. Um, I mean, this is my version. So. 16 albums um, I skipped the uh, Kicking Against the Pricks because it's covers um, and I went through every song and decided if I thought it had more of the element of swoon swagger or clatter and I assigned a colour to each of them <laughs> so you're so cool so red became clatter blue was swagger and the pure white was the swoon. Why is it? Did you run out of crayons at that point? No, no, no. Be- no, no, no. Black is swagger. No, it's... Yeah. Imp- but, but that wouldn't have produced such a beautiful um, picture. I decided then I was going to... So I went through and um, picked... Assigned how much of each was present in each of the albums. Right. Um, and I ended up with um, an... Ar- 
You ended up with something that's a very with a, hexa- a hexadecimal yeah. reference, um, colour reference for each of the albums. Um, just, just a double. This is what crap synesthesia. This is, and you know, and I know this is a podcast, and so it doesn't. Uh, we'll, we'll have to post this up, but this. Yeah, I'm not going to. Is a chart of Nick Cave, Swoon Swagger and Clatter. We should have gone with Pantone references, really. Yeah. Like, that's how we roll on this podcast. Okay, I went... Ral numbers. Yeah, sorry, I went with the... Uh, so the I went with the hex numbers. So so you start from um, from Her to Eternity in 1984. Which is 440. Which is FF0000. That's, that's the one. Which is just pure clatter. And then you end up at Ghostine in 2019 with just the FF, 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 which is pure white. And then somewhere in between you get shades of mauve and blue and... It's very colourful. And, 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 but what I found interesting about it... Not at all. What I found interesting about it is if when you realise that the element I like most of his is the swoon... Looking at this chart, you can see instantly which my favourite albums are. And it's but because the, they're the white ones. But you classified this. Oh, yeah, it's subjective. Yeah, yeah, But it yeah. proves out. And it's The Boatman's Call, the you Polly album. You something to prove your own theory. Yeah. Yeah, why not? I think it was two hours well spent. Someone else should have done it, though. Like, someone... You don't try and prove your own theory. It's easier than proving someone else's. Like, yeah. But yeah, so the boatman's call, skeleton tree, and ghostine were that came out as like the the, the, the the pure croon ones. Interestingly, Nocturama and Murder Ballads had exactly the same colour reference, and I hadn't put those two albums together before. Not, wait, sorry, say that again. Well, Nocturama and Murder Ballads. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say they're they're similar. No, exactly. Neither would Uh, I. But But they ended up with the same colour. In Tracy's eyes, that she likes them. I mean, look. Here's my working. There's my working. Jesus Christ! (laughs) No! Don't throw it at me. I don't fucking want it. (sighs) (laughs) I thought that was a an interesting project. Uh, it, It makes it makes a really nice picture actually when there's none of the notes on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. I think it's very beautiful. That, two hours yeah. of your life that you're is, not going to get back. Maybe get a job in B&Q, but... I think it was... May, maybe. Well, we, we, weren't we talking about paint colours when we were talking about Camera Obscura? No, well, I was talking well, about... These, just what, talking yeah, I was about talking about people wrong. that got sh- excited by beige just with a cool colour name. Well, I think these paint colours now, that, that's Ghostine White. And, uh, Ghostine's a fucking brilliant album. Isn't it? It really is. I love Let's and, talk about Ghostine. Let's talk about loads of the albums. Ghostine, I was a little worried about listening to, but I still listened to it when it first came out because yeah. there's the really obviously sort of sad bit of news that happened, which was while he was recording, between um, Push the Sky Away and Skeleton Tree. So while Nick Cave was recording Skeleton Tree, mm. his 15-year-old son um, tragically died in a... He was uh, climbing up a cliff and fell down, I believe. Yeah. Um, so obviously that... I think he rewrote some of the lyrics on Skeleton Tree, which meant that I did not listen to it for fucking ages because I thought that's going to be mm. too dark and I can't fucking cope with that, particularly it's being a, a dad. That is a, yeah. It's one of those things that you just don't want to listen it's to. It's a beautiful album. It's an amazing album. It's such a good album. Uh, there's a track called Girl in Amber. Mm. It's fucking beautiful. Amazing. But it's really about... It, it, that's about his wife um, and her reaction to the whole thing 
Um, but then ghosting, by that point, I think I was feeling a little bit more resilient. So I listened to it the night before it was released. They put up a, they did like a premiere on, on YouTube yeah. and I listened to it live and it's such a good album. Um, it would have absolutely been in my best albums of last year. Yeah, if I, it had come out early enough for us to have. Well, I could have. I still hadn't yeah. submitted my list when it came out, but I was driving to work listening to it. Like, yeah, this is amazing. But I got three quarters of the way in. And I was like, but I cannot carry on <laughs> listening to this. Yeah. And then go through a day of work because I would just be so fucking bummed. It, it, it's a painful listen. I mean, yeah, I, I cried through. I, I cried through huge sections of don't, it. I think it's a really optimistic. Um, it's more positive than I was expecting it yeah. to be. Yeah, like I didn't. I. It's sad, but it's yes. not like. Um, it's not. This sadness is is going to be with me forever. It's like, yeah. No, I mean it's because a bit sad, the, but, the lyrics know. in the, the the closing piece, you know, it does end on a hopeful note. Uh, you know, it, it's a long way to find peace of mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's bleak when it's a, you know, um, I'm, I'm waiting waiting for my time to come like he's waiting for his own death but then he's saying I'm just waiting now for peace to come so yeah it does end on a hopeful note um, it, it's so beautifully expressed um, I, I actually weirdly I think a lot of people and, and with a lot of bands people tend to normally like you know the earlier stuff and as they go on later on their work sort of diminishes and yeah some of Nick Cave's latest stuff is my favourite stuff. I pushed me, the sky away. Me too. Fucking amazing album. I mean, um, the. Uh, I, I would say that trilogy, Push the Sky Away, Skeleton Tree, and Ghostine, are actually my, among um, are my favourites now. But then Dig, Dig Lazarus, Dig, Abattoir Blues, Lyra Vorpheus. Yeah, I, I mean, that's when the, the style was so very different there. I mean, because the, the Abattoir Blues, I mean, that's his gospel album. Basically, yeah, but I mean, Dig Lazarus, Dig, you could see. That was where the blueprint for Grinder Man came from. Absolutely. The Grinder Man album, I think, was just after that. But then Push the Sky Away was his Grinder Man come down album. Yeah. It was like, I've got some of that. I've got that out of my really system. Really stuff out of my system. And now let's get back to this. Yeah. Is it allegedly that Grinder Man was always supposed to be three albums? Oh, so where's our third? So there may be a third one at some point. But there was an interview that I read with um, with Nick Cave and also with uh, with Warren Ellis, yeah. his main collaborator on on that. And they were talking about waiting till they're sort of in their mid to late sixties, just so it's even more disgusting that you've oh, got these old days. Basically, priapic. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's even more off-putting if they've got them doing it when they're nearly 70. If, if you go through his uh, back catalogue, actually, it's obvious that the, the, the partnerships that he's had, the songwriting partnerships, have been very important to oh, him. definitely. You know. And I the, think all my favourite stuff has been since Warren Ellis. But, but, I mean, because early on there was the, the Blixer. Yeah. That was very much, uh, he was the driving force behind them. But then, of course, there was Mick Harvey. Um, I mean, the Bad Seeds... Um, Mick Harvey actually said uh, in an interview that Nick was very lyrically driven and needed a vehicle for his words yeah. um, and it was Mick's job to build that environment yeah. for the words to operate in um, but I mean but then Nick had said earlier about Blixer well he, he was comparing them because he said like Harvey's role Nick Harvey's role was to pull together the strands of Cave's music but Blixer's role was to tear the strands apart 
yeah, well, but but then later on, Warren Ellis became the thing that replaced both of those earlier partnerships. Yeah. Well, Mick was a multi-instrumentalist. Yes. Whereas Blixer was just guitar. And, and, and backing vocals. Uh, he, he was guitar, but he hated. You know, he hated guitar. He took up guitar because he hated what other people did with the instrument, so he wanted to do something really destructive with it. It's one of the reasons I started this podcast. There's a <laughs> music podcast I used to listen to that I used to be shouting at my headphones every fucking week because they just you hated really it. fucking annoyed me. I was like, I can do better than that. I'm sure there's people that listen to this, and hopefully yeah. I've started them doing a podcast. Uh, let's hope so. Um, but yeah, so Blixer was just a guitar. You got Mick Harvey played guitar, bass, drums, pretty much everything, mm. and then. Warren joined, uh, there was a big overlap because Warren joined in the, officially joined in about 97. Yeah, because um, he was on the Boatman's Call, yeah. He, he was on Murder Ballads and Let Love In, mm. um, but he, was, he wasn't a full member of the band on Murder Ballads and Nick doesn't actually remember him being on Let Love In, but he was, because <laughs> Nick Cave was off his fucking face. At that point, but but yeah, it, it, you can see looking at the instruments that they play that he was a kind of replacement for, yeah, because you know, he's violin, electronics, guitar, mandolin, flute, accordion, bazooki. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we, it's not all about Nick Cave. I don't think you can underestimate the importance oh, God, no. that these people of his collaborators. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's also Con- Conway he... Savage as well. Yeah, um, you know, Con- Conway's piano and organ and. I've always loved, you know, the drums. I mean, uh, Thomas Widler, who's been yeah. the drummer nearly all the way through the band and is still there. He's the, the longest collaborator. He, he was there since um, Firstborn is Dead, I think he joined, which was about 1985. Yeah. And he's still in the band now and he's, he's never had any periods where he's dropped out. Other people have left and rejoined. You know, they've had bits where they've been two drummers. Um... But he stayed there. Yeah, it's um, the, Cave and Warren have worked together on film scores as well, haven't they? Quite a few, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he's they, he's ridiculously prolific. Uh, Warren Ellis obviously is also in Dirty Three. So yes. There's some amazing music with with the Dirty Three as well. Uh, he was in Dirty Three first of all. Yeah. Um, he's actually there was an interview that I was listening to on another podcast where the first time that he met Nick would was actually in the 80s um, years before they started working together in the band um, because Warren's old flatmate used to be a drug dealer that used to basically deal to all of the touring bands yeah. so they used to have like Nico had come round for uh, various uh, you know things that they were selling right um, and yeah Nick Cave used to every time he was on tour in that particular area of Australia used to pop round to the flat um, to buy his large amounts of heroin. Um, I, I think they are... I think that's been his closest friendship within the band. I think he relies on him not just... <laughs> no, Warren. <laughs> but yes. Not not just in an artistic sense, but I think um, in a spiritual friendship sense. Oh, yeah. they're, they're, they're very uh, close, I think. Yeah. There was a, There's an interview... Uh, there was a, a podcast that I was listening to where... It was supposed to be just an interview with Warren, mm. and Nick just walks through the hotel lobby while they're recording it, and comes over to say hello, and ends up sitting down doing the interview between the both of both of them. And it's really clear that they really do get on, and they're yeah. really good friends. That's cool. Uh, well, that is, it's a beautiful thing. 
There's a lot of stuff on his uh, site, the Red, red Hand Files. The Red Hand Files, where he asks yeah. the questions. And there was a hilarious question on there someone had put sent in. Um, it said, Do you ever get tired of all the pretentious fat lesbians who enjoy your music? Personally, I enjoy a lot of your music, but I find most of your fans insufferable. I'm just wondering if you're on the same page. <laughs> seems unlikely. It seems unlikely, doesn't it? His reply was... In the interests of free speech, I have given you a platform. However, and I'm speculating here, I think that probably 99% of the people who read your question will think you're being, well, a bit of an asshole. <laughs> I could be wrong. It could be more. <laughs> I prefer that other question where it's like, Nick, do you take a long time thinking of all the amazing, well-written, blah, 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 answers to your questions? And he responds, fucking ages. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But he really takes the time, I think, in that to, to, to actually talk, to, to really reply to the fans. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, the answer about the Stagger Lee thing was pretty amazing. That's You linked that one, Colin. I know, so but it was a long time ago and I can't remember it. It's like a very wordy explanation about, like, the whole lyrical yeah. themes of Stagger Lee and his response is like, you must be Australian. <laughs> it's only us Aussies that put this much thought into these kind of things. <laughs> and then just embraces it and gives him a really detailed answer. Yeah. The whole thing is totally worth reading through, though. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I've subscribed to it, so I get an email whenever there's a new one that comes out now, which is pretty regularly. It's quite oh, cool. I didn't know you could subscribe so that yeah. you get notified. Oh, so that's pretty cool. So they just send cool. them to you, your inbox. That's cool. Um, which is something to read on the bus on the way to work when I'm bored. I think it's strange that um, he feels like an artist who is very much in the public domain. We seem to know not just his work, but we feel like we have so much of him. We know so much of him. Um, that doesn't seem weird to me. Like, no. The level yeah. that he's at. You know, people are interested. He's happy to talk about things. Mm. Yeah. You know. And people want to talk about him. I mean, because his life is so endlessly he's, fascinating. He's like an international yeah. treasure. So I would say national yeah. treasure. He feels like he's, he's ours because he lives in Brighton. Well, yeah. And he, he plays the UK fairly regularly. Mm. Obviously, he's Australian. Um, but I'm sure people in America, because his music is so steeped in Americana, but not in a shit way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before Tracy Sucker. No, it doesn't sound like my kind of Americana. <laughs> uh, or, or Taylor Swift. Or, like or Taylor Swift kind of Americana. <laughs> but it's. I mean, this, this is a really fucking stupid thing that I've related it to, but. Because it's, it's not country at all. However, it's very. like. It takes a line from the outlaw country. Yeah, it's like a bit Johnny more Cash. western. Yeah, like yeah. I've, been, I've but been the plots from westerns rather than yes, like, like something like the Hammer song. Yeah, like. it's more like American literature than yeah. it is. Like yeah, dark, dark gothic American. He is very literary. I've yeah. I've been playing Red Dead Redemption Two on the PlayStation quite a lot recently while listening to Nick Cave as the music and it fits fucking perfect. Have you read his, no his novel and the Ass Saw the Angel? No, I haven't. I've read The Death of Bunny Munro. Oh, which OK. Is novel. Right, I haven't read that one, but um, his, 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 debut, his debut novel is all... Um, 
um, Old Testament retribution, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, there's actually there's a graphic novel from 2017 um, by Reinhard Kleist, um, who both wrote the the, the, the story and um, did the, 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 the illustrations for it, um, and it's kind of it's kind of fiction. It's a conflation. It's a fictionalised biography, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, it conflates some of his songs. songs with some of the biographical detail, but it's closer. They, they say it's closer to the truth than most biographies will get about him. But um, it's so. It, he's authorised it as well because there's a quote from him on the back cover. And and, and the way that it's been written is absolutely so beautiful because he 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 is so literary and. In this novel, um, he casts Nick as the, the captain of a ship in the storm, sailing in circles, uh, a creator of worlds, um, a god, the, the, the interventionist god that a he doesn't man, believe in. Guru. Yeah, um, and, and, but who creates and kills his characters as he pleases. Yeah. And it, it's basically, it, it's like a, a postmodern narrative um, where he meets some of the characters from his own songs so he meets the protagonist from the Hammer Song he meets Eucrid from the novel and the Ass Saw the Angel he meets Eliza Day he meets the death row convict from the Mercy Seat and the blues singer Robert Johnson who's in the Higgs Boson Blues um, I was slightly disappointed that Miley Cyrus didn't turn up in that Boson <laughs> Blues but, but, but there's some, really, some revealing truths about his art and his life that comes through from these conversations with his own characters and the Hammer Song character says to him you only care about your stories what about me? and Nick replies that a person has to kill to create something new it's the circle of life who dies if they continue to live on in a picture or a story or a song and then Eliza Day goes on and reminds him of his words, all beauty must die. Um, then he knelt above her with a rock in his foot. Yeah, yeah. And, and Nick <laughs> says that he wrenches his characters from oblivion and the song is immortal. But Eliza says, but immortality isn't real. It's just the literary flick of a wrist. It's a very pretentious graphic novel, but it's, it's, it's very, very me. It's very it's me. Super pretentious. It, it is. Um, I, but the, the thing is, there's a quote from Nick that actually kind of agrees with this approach, and he says, "My songs may be using characters, and narratives may appear fictitious, but they're all very much reflections of myself. Even though the narrative's blown out of all proportion, in the end, they seem largely autobiographical." Yeah. So all of these characters, they're him, and he says, "I, I recognise them with a shudder, <laughs> in the same way one sees themselves in the mirror." Yeah. So he sees himself in all of these songs, I don't as exaggerated as they are. I don't think you can write so well without that kind of connection mm. to your work. It makes you wonder what it's like to be inside Nick Cave's head. <laughs> There's um, room in that forehead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think maybe we should have, um, like, a... You, you know how there's the, uh, the film uh, Being John Malkovich... Maybe we could have like a, a being, being, Nick Cave. being Nick Cave. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, like there would be more death in it. So I was going to say, it's going to be a lot more violent. <laughs> But um, I mean, Cave. I mean, I, I know I bang on it. It's all pretentious. But Nick, really, Cave, Tracy. really, yeah, really. Yeah. Nick Cave did a lecture in 1999, um, and he described his songs as a means of finding God, a God that themselves helped help to create. And he described his songs as recalcitrant children waiting their turn to be born. Um, he, he's very, very serious. But then he talks about. Um, his songs um, as Duende and Swadad, which... Um, Saw Daddy. The... Saw Daddy, but isn't that the Chino Marino? Um, 
um, the second one the name of is, the... is involved in that project. Yes. Yeah, involved in that. But but so I found out what it means. It's the Portuguese for longing. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. So so duende. I know and, what it meant. I just couldn't pronounce it. Duende and suadad. I think it's Swadadi. pronounced. Uh, is the Portuguese for sadness and longing. But he says duende isn't just simply romantic melancholy. Um, it's an ache, a pain at the heart of experience, impossible to describe. Um, and he takes this. So, I mean, then he starts quoting someone else. Um, there's a lecture from a guy called Frederico Garcia Lorca, uh, The Theory and Function of Duende, and it attempts to shed light on the eerie and inexplicable sadness that lives at the heart of certain works of art. And all that has dark sounds has Duende, that mysterious power that everybody feels, but no philosopher can explain. Yeah. And I just... Yeah, I love Nick Cave's literary approach but to the, songwriting. At the same time, stuff like that might, makes him sound really fucking serious. Mm. He's hilarious. Yes. He's such a fu- funny dude. He's got a really, really good sense of humour. There's, like, there's a quote that he said where uh, people think I'm a miserable sod, but it's only because I get asked such bloody miserable questions. <laughs> um, there was a bit where he was talking about his, uh, that him and his wife Susie, they've got a dog. Uh, which he described as a psychotic dashing called Nosferatu, whose one great enterprise in life is to bite me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's a great name for a dog. You'd expect it, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. He used to claim not to be goth, but he's got a dog called Nosferatu. <laughs> yeah. He wears uh, black all the time. He wears time. black all the time. His surname is Cave. <laughs> um, his wife, um, Susie Cave, owns a uh, company called the uh, it's a clothing company called the vampire's wife <laughs> yep uh, which incidentally uh, I had a quick look just out of interest and you can buy a festival dress for 850 pounds wow don't wear a clothes that cost 850 pounds to a festival no <laughs> that's a bad idea so that's that's high class golf clothing yes clothing, then. That's for backstage at Glastonbury just before Nick she's goes a, on stage. She's yeah, also yeah, a model, isn't she? Yes. Um, which was the Nick Cave album that she's on the cover of? Why don't you know this? Uh, can't push, just push, the sky away. push the sky away. Um, and that was a model shoot that was taking place in their Brighton home. Um, and, and Nick was just happened to be there. And the photographer had asked if Nick could just go and open the shutters to change the light while they were taking the photos. And at the same time, she was changing from one outfit to the other. And the photographer yeah. was just taking some, you know, sort of fairly candid shots. And, and that shot... Is it that the lady was getting changed and the photographer was taking photos, basically? Yeah. You can get arrested for that. Yeah. <laughs> While her husband looks on. But it's such an arresting image. It's really extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah. It's a good album cover. And but they're, they're a good looking couple. It's very um, reminiscent of that Sid Barrett album cover, isn't it? Yeah. Which has got his girlfriend, who was his muse, um, yeah. also uh, naked on the, on the cover um, with the like, painted floorboards and, and that kind of thing. Um, I think we probably need to start wrapping it up about there, though. Maybe. Yeah, I, I, I could talk forever. So but... could I. Um, we all dig Nick Cave. He's fucking fantastic. Yeah. Everything he's done has been brilliant. Go and listen to Nick Cave. Uh, so that's the letter C. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've got the letter D next month. So we're going to be talking about another yes. Nick. We're going to be talking about Nick Drake. And also Deftones, so that's a nice diverse episode next month. Yes. And apparently dicks, fair enough. 
Um, that's what Ian's going to be talking about mostly. <laughs> um, thanks for listening. We've been We Dig Music. Bye. 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 Another endearingly shambolic podcast from WeDigPodcasts.com. Previously on the We Made This Network. Without a mouse. Yeah, there's one There's one specific thing in this movie that I, every time I see it, I'm like, you did that in a kid's movie? Oh, oh God, yeah, yes, yeah, well, I know I what you're on about. <laughs> Kirsty walked in to me watching this film just as this happened, and I had to reverse it and be like, watch the fuck out of this. What is, <laughs> what is happening? Uh, maybe we're not in this, maybe we're not talking about the same scene. I'm curious, when we, when we get to our three perspective scenes, I'm going to be curious what they are, because okay, okay. I don't know if we're all talking about the same thing. <laughs> We buy records. Hello, Tim and Paul. I am exactly the kind of devoted Ghostbox fan you described, Tim, and I was one of the grumpy, disappointed ones who missed out on GBX721, which is the Paul Weller. Weller. Yes, I have all the other 7-inch singles, and this one I knew I was going to probably miss out on. Maybe that's why I wasn't up and on the case at 7am on the day of pre-order. Maybe I subconsciously gave up on it as soon as it was announced. My initial reaction was that it was good on Weller to do something different, not really a fan, but not a hater, and brilliant for Ghostbox to get the recognition that they deserved. My second reaction was an immediate disappointment when I realised the Weller fans would snap up all the copies and I'd be lucky to get it in time. Motion Pictures The Rise of Skywalker had been kind of a direct sequel to The Force Awakens. I think some of these things would sit much more easily with us. But yeah. It's just the fact they thrown The Last Jedi under the bus, isn't yeah. it? I think yeah. the thing with The Last Jedi was that I think it's a very good example of how, and we've talked about this with the whole Marvel v Scorsese debate, you know, but The Last Jedi was a good example of how you can still have these big tentpole franchises, but they can still up very interest, still throw up very interesting cases of like auteurist smuggling, you know, where the director's kind of making this big juggernaut kind of bend to his will and I think Ryan Johnson had things he wanted to say with The Last Jedi and he was able to a surprising extent to get to be able to say them check out all of these shows on the We Made This Podcast Network